0: If you'll remember where we were last time in Colossians 2, we had really moved into what is called the imperative section of the letter, the the commands, the things that we are to do in light of what is true, that is, the indicatives, um, what is propositionally true about Christ and about ourselves. Um, We saw the hinge statement of the book of Colossians and Verse 6 of chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 2, this kind of great imperative, therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Um, we saw that um, in relation to the statement, as you received Christ, walking in Christ is simply knowing, treasuring, and enjoying Christ. In every situation of our lives, and every conceivable area of our lives, just as receiving Christ is not a matter of human will or human Effort, But rather the gracious provision of God, the the revelation of God as God reveals Christ in all of his fullness to us, so is walking in Christ. And we're, we're joined to Christ by the Spirit established in the faith and we walk out the sanctifying work being completed in us. And then Paul's first kind of sub imperative, the next command that he gives is a warning. Um, In verse starting in verse eight, it serves to warn against deceptive, false teaching, which would captivate the minds and and hearts and consciences of God's people to submit them again to this kind of worldly man centered, um, false, falsely wise, worldly slavery. Um, And I have to admit, as we kind of continue on this morning, I was a little overwhelmed at first in my study of our text today, primarily because there's two concepts in the text um, of which there's a lot of confusion, of which there's a lot of controversy, even in the history of the church, into Reformed Christianity, and that's circumcision and baptism. There's a lot of, of misunderstanding and confusion about those two subjects. It was also difficult for me this week because I realized how many Presbyterians I used to read, or I typically read in sermon prep. Um, and when I got to this text, most of the commentaries I had in systematic theology books, um, Bible studies, made it a matter of, Baptism being the new circumcision, why we should why we should baptize our infants, and what was the proper way to perpetuate the covenant in the kingdom of God through um, our families. Um, And at that point, those commentaries that I typically love became really unhelpful to me. Um, And while this passage does give us instruction regarding circumcision and, and baptism, in a sense, we're essentially in the same area of Paul's discussion that we left off last time, and really in the Greek, we're in the middle of the same sentence. This is um, another reason why what Paul is giving here about circumcision and baptism in Christ is another reason why we must not let ourselves be taken captive, taken captive by philosophy and and empty deceit. The truths that Paul gives here, they're they're just another reason in a series of reasons that he's giving why we shouldn't submit again to slavery, to this man-centered ...worldly, legalistic, flesh-pleasing false teaching, which makes it all about human will and human effort in the Christian life. And it's very true that both circumcision and baptism have been the subjects of worldly, man-centered, flesh-pleasing false teaching. Even into the modern life of the church. And the error is essentially that the external act of circumcision or the external act of baptism after it, it gives you some sort of spiritual benefit as a means of grace or entrance into the covenant or entrance into the kingdom of God, despite whether the spiritual reality that the external act is meaning to convey is true in you or not. Um, And that's exactly how so many professing Christians in our modern times, whether they really understand what baptism is or not, whether they care enough to weigh in on on the debate between baptism of infants, baptism of believers. That's how they treat the outward forms of the Christian religion. I think that coming to church or being affiliated with a body of believers, having their names listed on the membership roll, participating in church life will afford them some sort of benefit, regardless of whether the spiritual reality is true. The fundamental error is that the outward forms of religion have some sort of significance apart from the spiritual reality that those outward forms represent. That entrance into the kingdom of God is a matter of human will or human self-identification, human choice, human effort. As if we can choose to just be part of the church or part of the kingdom of God as we would choose what sports team that we like. As we would choose what um, golf club we want to be a part of. As if the outward forms of obedience to God determine what is true of us spiritually. And indeed, I think there's always present in us as human beings this kind of um, fleshly tendency to a Judaizing type of thinking, which insists on human performance, on human ability, on a human role in redemption. When I was a, a young kid, my siblings and I had this uh, babysitter who would watch us when... Um, Our parents were away. And and usually I was doing something while my parents were gone that was pretty stupid or rebellious, unproductive. But I remember one evening I was reading my Bible um, as a a pretty young believer. And this this sweet lady, she was probably surprised to see me doing something that productive. Um, So she began to talk to me about it. And and I don't remember where I was reading or what I was reading. But I, I do distinctly remember that as we talked about sin and the gospel, I remember seeing the look of conviction come across her face. And so she, you know, she kind of shook it off and she said, yeah, my, my relationship with God isn't great, but I've been meaning to get baptized again um, as if that would do something for her. And, and you know, I, I knew as a, even as a young Christian that wouldn't do anything for her. And I bluntly told her that. Um, and she was shocked to hear that getting wet in the baptistry wouldn't wouldn't shore up her relationship with God. And that's obviously a, a simplistic understanding of what baptism is. But it's exactly the reasoning of the Judaizers here in this text in reference to circumcision. It's exactly the, the way many Christians treat baptism and the way many of us here even may unwittingly tend to, to treat the motions of our church and our faith. We use the, the activities of church life to try to make our consciences feel better, to try to soothe our consciences regardless of whether the spiritual reality, the, the real satisfaction and joy in Christ is true. And, and I think at least part of the reason why such confusion exists concerning the kingdom of God, entrance into the kingdom of God, through baptism or circumcision, is because there's a lot of confusion, and there has always been confusion concerning the gospel of God, even in professing church, professing Christian churches, and that confusion persists um, even in the Reformed part of the church. Maybe especially in the Reformed part of the church um, today, it, it's bewildering to me. But there's multiple factions which all claim to hold to the same doctrines of grace. And yet, they all, with the Judaizers, tend to add aspects to the gospel. They try to add on to the gospel. On one side, you have those who kind of grew up in the young, restless, and reform movement, and then they went the way with so many of those teachers into to this kind of woke ideology, where they they seek to add social aspects to the gospel, social components to the gospel, racial reconciliation. Um, General social equity, these economic policies that are not only just considered part of the Christian faith, but part of the gospel itself. But equally as dangerous and maybe less offensive to us um, on the other side is this kind of teaching which would combine biblical concepts, which would combine the law of condemnation, which would combine the gospel of justification by faith and which would combine the great commission. And it's called the discipleship and obedience into sometimes what is called the larger or the broader gospel message and according to this kind of thinking the responsibility to obey the law and specifically to engage in social moral reform through activism and legislation it's not just a requirement for all christians it can be a requirement to be christian no longer is the church's message to the world one of reconciliation to god through the person and work of jesus christ it is a message of submission to the law's requirements For society under the feet of Jesus. And those things are good. They are true. But they must be preserved in their distinction. Because to combine the elements of Scripture, the doctrines of Scripture, means to distort all of the doctrines of Scripture. The gospel gets conflated and equivocated with all sorts of additional responsibilities. And with true or false doctrines. And it understandably makes the gospel nearly impossible to define and to state clearly for those who need to hear it. Charles Spurgeon puts it this way. It has been said that he who understands the two covenants, the old and new, is a theologian. And this is no doubt true. I may also say that the man who knows the relative positions of the law and of the gospel has the keys of the situation in the matter of doctrine. The relationship of the law to myself and how it condemns me, the relationship of the gospel to myself and how if I be a believer, it justifies me. These are the two points which every Christian man should clearly understand understand to mingle law and gospel is to teach that which is neither law nor gospel but the opposite of both so how does one enter the kingdom of heaven this is kind of the question today this is the question posed by Paul or the question answered by Paul rather and there's really only one viable answer for us as Christians if we're to preach the same gospel that Jesus preached the same gospel that Paul preached the same gospel of which Paul was was unashamed the power of God and the salvation for the Jew first And the Gentile. And the gospel must be nothing more and nothing less than personal reconciliation with God through the sinless life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of Christ, through which our sins are forgiven, through which we are made righteous, given the righteousness of Jesus by faith, through which we die to our sin and are made alive to God through the work of the Holy Spirit, so that we might come before a holy God. With confidence and not a fear of condemnation. That's it. That's that's really the gospel message. It's simple and it's profound. It's personal, but it's cosmic in scope. Everything in the Bible is important, but this message is at the center of it all. The significance of all of the other parts of Scripture, all of the other commands of God, comes from the truths that are present in the gospel. So the gospel is what's foundational. The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the kingdom, it has implications for all of life and all of society, all of creation. But it's fundamentally a message of how God saves sinners. And that's a flesh killing, flesh denying reality. The gospel is the gospel is God saves sinners. It's not God helps sinners. It's not sinners save themselves, which would be much more um, palatable for our human pride. And because it is fundamentally a message of how God saves sinners, there's always going to be this tendency in us to add something to it. We think it's too simple. It's reduced down to to, to, too bare of a fact. But it's fundamentally a message about how Jesus died for his enemies so that we could inherit his kingdom and enter that kingdom through the new birth that comes from hearing the gospel we can't make it less than that but we also must not make it more than that or we lose the heart of what the gospel is man looks at those outward appearances the externals but the true living and omniscient god looks at the heart and that's ultimately what what the, all of the commands of god what all of the spiritual realities or all of the truths the external forms of religion in the christian faith are about they're about the heart the individual heart before God. You have to start at that level where everything else in Christianity is meaningless. So with, with that in mind, I want to look at the text this morning. I'm going to read it um, starting in verse 6 through the end of verse 15. Lord willing, we'll finally get to the end of this verse in the, or the, this sentence in the Greek. And then I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help us. So starting in verse 6, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Father, I thank you for this time together, Lord, that we can open your word together, that we can see what is true about christ and about ourselves here lord that we can rejoice in what we find there god i pray that you would open our eyes um, that we would see wonderful things in your word and in your law would i pray that you would give us hearts that are able and um, willing to receive this word god to obey it to apply it to our lives would i pray that you would humble us before your word Um, Help me not to preach on matters of of personal agenda and personal conviction, but rather to preach what is always true and ever true in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we are built up together um, this morning. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So it's a bit surprising here. Um, We've tracked Paul's kind of grand descriptions of the cosmic redemption, the divine fullness of Christ throughout Colossians so far. Um, we've seen him compare Christ with the, the mystical and pseudo-reasonable false teachings of men. And here the apostle introduces the subject of circumcision. Something that, you know, looks a little bit out of place in his discourse. And as Paul, as Paul Priest mentioned in his sermon on, on Christ and the Sabbath in Luke a few weeks ago, Paul's mention of a circumcision here in Colossians, it reveals a Jewish element to the Colossian heresy. In response to the conversion of the Gentiles, both in Colossae and Ephesus and other places through the gospel of Jesus Christ, um, these Jewish professing Christians have come along and said, "Hold on, that, that's not all. It's very well that you've believed in Jesus. It's fine that you've held to his sacrifice. Those are good things. But have you heard about circumcision? Have you heard about the law? Um, what are you eating? Um, what are you what are you doing?" Um, and they've they've really added. Um, aspects to the gospel that they felt that they had to go through. Now the Gentiles have to go through them as well. You must do this so that you can enter into salvation, enter into the kingdom of God. You must do this, circumcise yourself to a power over the flesh. And that understandably, um, as it does now with some, other, with some other Judaistic teachings, it causes a lot of confusion in the churches. It caused a lot of confusions here in Colossae many of the Gentiles to which Paul had been preaching probably had little knowledge of the practice of circumcision, at least within the context of the Jewish law. And now comes along some zealous and maybe even some well-intentioned Judaizers who were laying additional requirements on the Gentiles to be considered members of the household of God. And this scandal over circumcision, it rocked the early church for decades. It was pretty much the, the chief false teaching that Paul opposed ...throughout the course of his life. It bred a lot of confusion... ...over exactly what the gospel was. Over exactly what the kingdom of God was. Exactly how one was made right with God. How exactly one was made a member of God's covenant. A citizen of God's kingdom. A member of God's family. And whether the false teachers in Colossae... ...are truly Judaizers, truly Jews... or just appropriating some Jewish requirements... ...to kind of legitimize their own heresy... The error is the same, that an act or a ritual or a practice done by man, done by human hands, can bring someone what only Christ can truly give them. So if you're, just in case you're unfamiliar with what circumcision is, I want to trace it briefly um, from its institution um, through the Old Testament. What is circumcision? What was the purpose? To whom was it given? And we see it introduced, firstly, in Genesis 17, if you... Turn there with me. Circumcision is introduced in God's covenant with with Abraham, who becomes Abraham. His name is changed from Abram to Abraham here in Genesis 17. And in verse 1, it says, When Abram was ninety-nine years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. That I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. this is my covenant which you shall keep between me me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is 8 days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So we see for the first time in the scriptures here in Genesis 17, this rite of circumcision. It's given to Abraham and to every male offspring or slave eight days Or older, And at the very beginning, the ritual of circumcision is connected to the covenant through Abraham's responsibilities to keep the covenant. In verse 1, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The covenant of circumcision is also connected to possession of the promised land in Canaan. Here in verse 8, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And by virtue of the nature of what circumcision entails, the practice is only done to male children. It's this act of cutting flesh away from the male reproductive organ, known as the foreskin. The act of circumcision it emphasizes the male reproductive organ for a purpose. It involves the cutting away of flesh. Circumcision, circumcision rather, focuses on the seed, the offspring, the descendants of Abraham. And it's really a link back to Genesis 3 where God promises that through the seed, through the offspring of the woman, God would accomplish something for the people, for his own people. He would accomplish a cutting away of the flesh, a cutting away of their sin, crushing the head of the serpent. The same seed of the woman from whom Abraham descended according to the promises of God would do something for all of his people, cutting off his people from sin and the power of the flesh. That's what circumcision here is meant to signify. It's linking it to what has come before. Um, Later, we see circumcision mentioned in Genesis 34. And this time it's used um, not as a covenant sign, but as a trick. It's used as a trick by the sons of Jacob to enact revenge on their enemies. The descendants of Abraham lead the Hivites, this, this foreign people, to believe that if they simply copy the physical act of circumcision, they will be part of God's covenant people. They will be one people with the descendants of Abraham. And as soon as they do that, as soon as they undergo circumcision, all the males of the Hivites, the sons of Jacob come in and kill them all while they're recovering. This was a ruse, and it's obviously sacrilegious on the parts of the sons of Jacob. They're making a mockery of their own covenant. But if anything is shown here, it's also shown that clearly it's not the external act of circumcision that makes someone a member of the covenant of God. It's not entrance into the covenant at all. It didn't work for the Hivites. Um, I don't recommend it. Circumcision is again made law. It's made law for the nation of Israel, which is descended from Abraham. It's given to the Israelites not because they chose to undergo the sign to be made in the covenant, but because they were already part of the covenant by virtue of who they were descended From in Exodus 12 and Leviticus 12, along with the introduction of the concept of what is called uncircumcision. So now we have circumcision as a sign of the covenant. Now we have uncircumcision in Exodus 12 and Leviticus 12. It's uncleanness, non covenantal status, violation of the law of God. And with that, with uncircumcision comes the penalty of death. The ritual of circumcision, it's not simply an act of promise, it's a requirement of the law of God. And if you were to do anything to compromise that, then you would be punished under the law. There was a way that your circumcision could be counted as uncircumcision. And we're given the true significance of circumcision in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy itself functions as an exposition or an explanation of the law of God. In Deuteronomy, we have a summary statement of the entire law of God in one commandment. In Deuteronomy 6, 4, called the Shema in Judaism, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's ultimately what Israel needs to do, to stay in covenant relationship with God, to keep the promised land. The same requirement is put another way in Deuteronomy chapter 10, starting in verse 12. Where Moses says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your father's. And chose their offspring after them and you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. That's what circumcision ultimately is, a picture of God's command to be circumcised in heart. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, of the requirement for those who are truly the Lord's to love the Lord their God with all of their heart and all of their soul to keep the commandments Perfectly, to walk before him, to be blameless before God, holy as he is holy, to serve the Lord, their God, with no division of allegiance or attention or affection, to obey him perfectly and everything. To do that is to be circumcised in heart. To not do that is to be under the curse of God, uncircumcised in heart and a breaker of the covenant of God. So circumcision was given to the people of God in the Old Testament to show them Not their covenantal status, but their true spiritual need. It's a sign of need. It's a sign of what they don't have. Because as Joshua tells the people of Israel, you are not able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion or your sins. The people will rebel. The people will sin. They won't love God. You are not able to serve the Lord. So what does circumcision show that we cannot change our desires? We cannot rid ourselves of the flesh that apart from Christ, we are slaves to our passions and our lusts. We are lovers of our sins, bound to rebel against the holy God and doomed to the penalty of that rebellion under the law of God. So circumcision is a sign of blood and of death if you do not keep the law of God. As Paul says in Romans 2, circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And the spiritual need of circumcision of heart, it's echoed throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the meeting of that need is promised throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 30, Moses promises, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. David cries out for this work in Psalm 51 after he sins. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Jeremiah echoes God's requirements in in chapter 4 of his book. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Because those who are circumcised merely in the flesh, he says in chapter 9, the uncircumcised in heart will be punished under the wrath of God. So circumcision never met a need. It never provided anything for the saints of the Old Testament. It pointed to man's greatest need before God. Just as the law was given to show our lawlessness before God, so circumcision was given to show our uncircumcision before God. The wickedness of our sin and our flesh. In the last chapters of Jeremiah, they give the people of God God's promise to meet that need with a new kind of circumcision, a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, starting in verse 31, he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers, the old covenant, on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Then he promises, he says, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, and I will remember their sin no more. This is a new covenant, not like the covenant he made with Israel. Not like the covenant he made with Israel. For one, the covenant of Israel was one that could be broken. This new covenant is one that cannot be broken. The the Old Covenant was temporary. The New Covenant is eternal. The Old Covenant was external. The New Covenant is internal and spiritual. The Old Covenant made between God and Israel through Moses was broken and it ended when God drove Israel out of the land of promise and into exile through the nations. And it could not be kept because Israel could not live up to the perfect standard which the law of God and the covenant of God required. Even Moses as their mediator couldn't help them. He didn't even enter into the promised land because of his own sin. The old covenant was unkeepable, broken beyond repair. And it's because the old covenant was not sufficient to keep the people of God in right relationship with God that a new covenant, a better covenant, is promised by God throughout the prophets in words of hope to the people that are exiled. The prophets don't write of the old covenant being reestablished. They write of a new, unbreakable, eternal, inward and spiritual covenant which will bring right relationship with God. So there's a sense in which the entirety of the Old Testament is about need. is about the need for a new and better covenant. The need for a better man and a covenant head. A better seed, a better son, a better mediator, a better priest and prophet and judge and king. The need for something better than circumcision. Something even better than the law of God. For us. The law of God is perfect. I'm not saying that the value of the law of God is decreased by us. But we need something better for us. Something that can can make us righteous and not condemn us. And that's what's so amazing when we finally get to Paul's introduction of circumcision in Colossians two. Because he's not talking about their need when he introduces circumcision. He's talking about their fullness. He's speaking to those, just the verse before, who have been filled in him, in Christ, who is the head of all rule and authority. That Paul is talking about an altogether new and different kind of circumcision is is evident in the first few words of our text. In him also you were circumcised. Who's the you that he's speaking to? It's not Jews. It's not Jewish proselytes or Jewish converts. He's speaking to Gentiles. He's writing to Gentiles and he says, you have been circumcised, not you will be like it promises in the Old Testament. You will be circumcised in heart, not you are being circumcised in heart, but you have been you were circumcised once for all time. They don't need another circumcision because they already have one. And this circumcision, it's not only in place of the circumcision offered by the Jews, but it's made without hands. It's a divine, heavenly, spiritual circumcision. The circumcision of the old covenant was physical and seen and temporary. And this circumcision performed by God in the Colossians is spiritual and unseen and eternal. Not only is it spiritual and eternal, but it's much more extensive. It's much more complete compared to the circumcision offered by the Jews. The old circumcision cut away a little flesh. The new circumcision puts off the entire body of the flesh. If circumcision of the heart was simply a matter of cutting off pieces of flesh, cutting away little bits of worldliness or immorality, then all the Jews would have been in the kingdom of God. We could all be in the kingdom of God just by denying ourselves, like the practice of Lent. That would be enough to secure our spot in the, pra- in, in the kingdom of God. That's what the false teachers in Colossae offered through their asceticism, their self-denial, just putting off little bits of the flesh. Their moralistic teaching promised that, but Christ requires more than that. He doesn't just require some of our worldly passions. He takes them all. He cuts away our entire bodies of flesh. He removes all of our sin. And this circumcision is not the circumcision of Abraham or of the old covenant or of Moses. It's the circumcision of Christ. It's the substance to which the shadow of old circumcision pointed. It's the fulfillment of circumcision, the real and true and spiritual reality, the meeting of the spiritual need, which is identified again and again in the law and the prophets. Every circumcision in the Old Testament was a bloody reminder that we were slaves to our flesh and our sin and that we needed a savior to rescue us from the wrath wrath to come. So every circumcision performed by a faithful saint in the Old Testament was simply an act of trust and faith that God would meet their need. The greatest need of man before a holy God. And God meets that need here in the Colossians by the provision of His Son. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the woman who walks before the Lord blamelessly, He fulfills the requirements of Genesis 17. The one who fulfills every covenant requirement, obeys every command of God's law, the one who inaugurates a new covenant, In His blood. Who's cut off for our transgression. Who bleeds and dies on our behalf. You want to know why we don't practice circumcision that requires our blood? Because Jesus already spilled it. Therefore, our blood is not shed. Why is circumcision not required for us as Christians? It is not because it was replaced with baptism. It's because it was fulfilled once for all time in Christ. So circumcision and the Old Covenant expressed in ordinances were completely fulfilled in Christ. The Old Covenant is abolished by a new and a better covenant. One that does not make merely external commands of the people of God. It brings inward eternal change. That's what baptism is here in this text. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the spiritual reality. The baptism of Christ. Part of the circumcision of Christ. He explains this further in verse 12 says having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead so we are by faith here joined to Christ in his death buried with him this is a side note but why do we as baptists practice baptism by immersion because Christ was buried Christ was buried, descended into the earth. If it's a picture of what this is meant to convey, then we are to immerse ourselves just as we are immersed in the death of Christ. And just as we are united with him in his death, so we are united with him in resurrection, raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. This is a single experience of grace that we're talking about being joined to the death and resurrection of Christ. Through faith, And this phrase, through faith and the powerful working of God, it could either be intended to mean that we trust in the powerful working of God by which we're buried and raised, or that our faith and our baptism and our resurrection are all by the powerful working of God. That because this circumcision is made without human hands and takes place when we were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh, it is necessarily effectual for us. This is a work of God, this, this circumcision, a work of God done in us apart from our will or our permission or our approval. This is how God makes covenant members. Paul is giving us here a picture of our new birth in Christ. That's what this is. It's our regeneration. It's new spiritual life in Christ where there was none before. This is what happens when a person is born again by the power of God. The reality to which our water baptism points. The day that the Spirit of God shines the light of Christ and His gospel into our darkened hearts is the day that our body of flesh dies with Christ on the cross. And we are raised with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places, as Paul puts it in Ephesians. We're washed by the water of the Word. Our hearts are changed and our minds are are renewed. We're given new affections and new desires. Our eyes are opened to the beauty of Christ. Our flesh and its desires no longer have control over us. We're controlled by the Spirit of Christ, and we can see that even more clearly in verses 13 and 14. These are the effects of our circumcision, or our baptism, our our new birth. Formerly, in verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins. The Greek word there is nekros spiritually dead, insensitive, indifferent to the things of God, unable to believe, unable to obey, unable to understand. As Paul uses the word in Ephesians, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Enslaved to the world, enslaved to the flesh, enslaved to the devil. The uncircumcision of our flesh, as Paul puts it, the uncleanness and corruption which God would rightly damn in His holiness. Remember, as Paul says in Ephesians 2.12, that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And though the Colossians were dead like this, the Ephesians were dead like this, we were dead like this. In Colossians 2 verse 13, it says, God made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt which stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. When God makes us alive and he opens our eyes to the depth of our sin, the holiness of God, the kindness of God in Christ, and he gives us hearts that are willing and able to turn from our sin and to trust in Christ, when that happens and we are, faith, we are joined by faith to Christ and his death and our old selves are put to death on the cross, The holiness and the justice of the law of God are satisfied. The legal demands here in the Greek, they're dogmas, commands, authoritative decrees, unyielding standards that stood against us. This is a Greek strength word here. It means hatred, hostility. The law hated us. What the Judaizers didn't realize is that the law was not on their side. It stood against them. It was hostile to them. And it's hostile to us apart from Christ. The law demanded our blood. God demanded our blood for what we had done. But God, in His burning anger and holy wrath, He turns and He punishes Jesus Christ with the full weight of His fury and His anger and His wrath. The images of this legal document that lists all of our sins and the penalty for our sins. Adultery, death, pornography, death, lust, death, lying, death, all of these things. And he takes this list and he drives it into the cross with the same nails that hold Christ there. That's what happens here. And our sins are our sins that demanded our blood. They're wiped away, blotted out That's what the word canceled means. It's like someone takes an eraser on a chalkboard and just wipes them away. They're gone. And with that act of wrath and justice and love and mercy, God disarms the rulers and authorities and puts them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Every accusation that Satan and his demons could lodge against us, that the enemies of the church could make, every accusation of our own conscience, every accusation of God's law According to the standard of God's holiness, was silenced at the cross. No slander can be heard, no flaw is acknowledged, no guilt can be seen in the saints of Jesus Christ who die with him in his baptism and are raised with him in resurrection. That's the spiritual reality that you are proclaiming has personally happened to you when you undergo the waters of baptism. Our sins can't follow us, our debt can't follow us beyond the cross of Christ in the grave where he was buried. The legal system doesn't convict dead people. And we have died with Christ. And our circumcision and baptism, they're not just an act of death, but of new creation. Of new creation, as Paul says in Galatians 6, "...but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation." It's that new creation, that circumcision of our hearts that gives us a love for God, a desire for the things of God, a hunger for his word, a love for the other saints. It's the putting off of the body of flesh that gives us power over the flesh, that ends our slavery to sin, ends our love for the world and the things of the world. It's the basis of Paul's command in Colossians 3. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. It's not true of you anymore. Put, the, put off the old self with its practices. Put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Those are moral commands, right? Ethical responsibilities. The law of God endures. But it endures for the Christian because it is in the Christian. It's written on his heart. So the Christian lives out the commands of God as a natural expression of the new man. A natural expression of changed hearts, serving God by the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the letter. They're made able and willing to obey the law of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. We are made able to serve the Lord. Joshua says you are not able and Christ says you are able to serve the Lord. And The law of God apart from that for the unbeliever is nothing but condemnation, external decrees that demand his blood. But the law of God for the believer is the way of life the way of life the way of lifestyle the overflow of his heart because God's righteousness is now innate to him it's inwardly true and therefore it's outwardly expressed so how is the law of God established and expanded throughout the nations not by imposing it outwardly but by implanting it inwardly the man is made new inwardly and spiritually before he expresses that change outwardly and physically that's the reality that's the reality that baptism signifies. And that's why baptism can't be given to those who enter the who, those who enter the those who do not enter the covenant by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. You don't enter the covenant by circumcision, you don't enter it by baptism, you don't enter it by covenant membership. You enter the covenant one way. All those other things are acts of obedience by those whom God has placed into the covenant. My regeneration transferred then into the kingdom of his beloved son from the kingdom of darkness. And until that spiritual reality is true, the external, the physical representation of it is meaningless. As Alistair Begg puts it, the external representation is only relevant or valid as long as the internal reality is true. A wedding ring on a man's finger is only significant if that man is in faithful covenant marriage with his wife. Our baptism is only significant if we have been buried and raised with Christ. Our lives are only significant with Christ if we have died and our lives are hidden with Christ in God. So to act as if any external mark of religion or obedience has any meaning or any benefit for you, apart from possessing the true spiritual reality which gives those things significance, is to fall into the same error in externalism as the Pharisees and the Judaizers. So, what separates Christians who are truly in the faith from the mass of unregenerate and perishing pagans in the world is not baptism, it's not church attendance, or circumcision, or tithes, or any external trapping of the Christian religion. And that's so true if you look at just the the studies that have been done about personal conduct in the church. Divorce outside of the church, 50% of marriages. Divorce inside the church, 50% of marriages. What makes the difference there? It's not church attendance, apparently. There's something else that has to be inwardly true. It's the regeneration of God which produces a meaningful moral difference in his people. What good is any part of our religion if it's just a symbolic act of something that we've never experienced? It doesn't do anything for you. It might fool your fellow church members. It might fool your pastor. It doesn't fool God. God doesn't look at the externals. He's not even looking at that. He's looking at the inward reality. And perhaps one reason why the church is so hard to distinguish, the professing church is so hard to distinguish from the rest of the world is because most of the professing church is satisfied with the external practice, regardless of whether the spiritual reality is true. You can't fake regeneration until you make it. So apart from Christ, you are ruled by the world and the flesh and the devil. And that's exactly what can be said if you just look at the lives of so many professing Christians in our culture today. I mean, think about it. If you love what unbelievers love and if you're passionate about what they're passionate about, you're you're happy about what makes them happy. You spend your time and your money like they do. You speak like they speak. You're entertained by what entertains them. What's the difference? You're in the same spiritual darkness. There's nothing about you that makes you Christian other than where you go on Sunday. That's circumcision of the flesh if there ever was such a thing. What produces that kind of confusion, I think, is any sort of Christian practice which insists on baptizing or Christianizing the unconverted based merely on self-identification with Christ or by virtue of who they're related to. Baptizing babies because of who their parents are. Or baptizing unconverted people because of an emotional decision. Those are two great ways to build unregenerate churches. In the kingdom of God, what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? The kingdom of God is not a matter of personal choice or physical relation. What does he say in John 3? Unless one is born again, born from above, born of water and the spirit circumcised in heart, baptized in me. Unless that is true, you cannot see or enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not advanced by human will or human effort or human laws, any human activity at all. It is expanded through the powerful working of God by the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the people God has mercifully chosen to save. The kingdom of God is only populated by those whom the Spirit of God has brought new life. And so it is with the covenant. Every part of the Old Testament history of God's people points to what I'm saying here. Points to those realities. God made a people out of Abraham to point to when he would make a chosen race, a royal people out of Christ. God made a nation out of that family in the midst of another nation, Egypt, and brought them out as a type of when he would make a holy nation out of the midst of the kingdom of darkness and bring them out for himself into the kingdom of his beloved son. God drove those Israelite people as covenant breakers from the promised land to demonstrate mankind's inability to keep the law of the covenant and point to an altogether better covenant fulfilled in Christ, who did keep the law and gives us an eternal inheritance which will not be taken away in Jesus. God redeemed Israel from exile as a type of what he does through election for all of his people throughout the nations. It's dangerously easy to convince ourselves of our own spiritual health and life based on our outward motions of church life. Based on what we've done in the past, we can deceive ourselves with this rigid observance of external forms of religion. We satisfy ourselves with shadows rather than the substance of Christ. And God's law is not simply a matter of what you do, but why you do it. It's the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Why you do what you do. That's what worship in spirit and in truth is. It's right actions born of a right heart of true belief and repentance. There is no keeping any aspect of the law until the heart is made right. There's a call here in this text to examine ourselves. Lest in any of us there be this evil, unbelieving heart causing us to fall away from the living God when we talk about the word preached and the fellowship of the saints and the Lord's Supper and the act of baptism as means of grace for the saints, and so they are, but they don't afford you any grace if you've never experienced the grace of God. When we're convicted and when we're shown our sin by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, there's only one recourse that will do anything for us, and that's casting ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ. Christian morals and Christian activities, church activities, they can be a great place for a sinner to hide from their conscience, to hide from the work of the Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But one day, this assembly won't be here and there will be nowhere to hide before God. It's not a matter of how we see you as a church body. It's not a matter of how your pastor perceives you. It's a matter of what is true in you, inwardly, spiritually. And God knows the difference. So if you've not been truly circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, had your body of flesh cut away from you, your sin and your guilt buried with Christ, your spirit raised with Christ, your mind renewed in the resurrection power of God by faith, those means of grace, anything we do as a church, it's meaningless for you. You can cut away all the pieces of your body that you want. You can cut away all parts of immorality that you want. You can get wet and call it baptism. You can eat crackers and grape juice or wine and call it the Lord's Supper. You can come to church or sit in the pew while the preacher speaks, go to small groups, visit with the saints, but until your trust is in Christ alone and you're transformed by His work alone, apart from anything you can do, all those things are is a pagan religion. You're not serving the true God. That's idolatry. And it's for that same reason that sprinkling infants, this is kind of a side point, but those who have not known the grace and mercy of God Baptizing anyone who doesn't know the Lord is meaningless. But it's, it's doubly perverse to baptize people that you know don't know the Lord. That's just like the people, the sons of Jacob treating the Hivites. You are tricking them and deceiving them on purpose because of a theological position. You must first be baptized into Christ's death, raised in his life, joined to him by faith in the powerful working of God. When you have received such a circumcision, you have no need of the other one. You have in Christ all that man-centered legalism claims to offer you and more. You have the unseen and the eternal. You don't need the lesser and the temporary, the seen and the temporary. You have the substance in Christ. You don't need the shadows. And if you have the substance of Christ, you have all that those shadows ever meant They always pointed to Christ. So baptism and the Lord's Supper, I don't don't want to stray into antinomianism here by how strongly I'm preaching the other point. They're external rituals that do nothing to contribute to our salvation. So why do we practice those things? Why does our Lord command that we practice those things? Well, if you're practicing them rightly, it's because the spiritual realities are true in you. It's because you're practicing what is already true in you. Circumcision was all about our need. Baptism is all about our fullness in Christ. You don't wear a wedding ring to become married. you wear it because you're married. That's what baptism and the Lord's Supper in one sense are. Our Lord Christ is not interested in external change, if inwardly you're not a new man. And without the inward change first, the outward change is at best temporary, and at worst is just wicked hypocrisy. We as Christians, united to Christ, are free from practicing anything in this life which is not true of us in Christ. I mean, think about that. The basic Christian imperative concerning ethics, the basic Christian command concerning the law is be what you already are in Christ. Be what you already are. We don't need a circumcision in the flesh because Christ has met our need. We at no point in Christian lives must sin. Because Christ has freed us from the body of flesh. I'm not preaching Christian perfectionism. We will sin. We will succumb to the flesh. But I would argue that those who are truly in Christ, they do so progressively less and less as they are inherently made more like Christ. Because in Christ, the power of sin and flesh has been broken and we're free to live to God as those who are truly free. I like what Spurgeon says about this. Sin in the position of a natural man is that of a king on his throne. But the position of sin in a Christian is that of a bandit hiding in secret places, trying to usurp or trying to gain back its usurped dominion, but failing in the attempt. That's essentially the command that Paul is giving in Colossians three. He's calling us to go hunting, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, find those secret places, drive them out of the land, put your sin to death. That's the Christian life. As Justin said about, about acting, he was talking about an actor in the New Age this morning. Um, acting is being what you're not. That's legalism. That's circumcision of the flesh. Christian living is being what you already are in Christ. We progress as Christians in our faith and our conduct to the extent that we understand what we are in Christ. To the, to the extent that we understand what we've been given in Christ, who we've become in Christ, the image into which we're being made. So, church, I would urge you this morning, don't settle for the externals and neglect the truth of what they signify. If you embrace anything outwardly that we do as a church or as Christians as the basis of your hope or as the means of your salvation, as the means of soothing your conscience, Christ is of no advantage to you. If you want to please God in anything without Christ, you're obligated to please God in everything without Christ. Don't be misled by any system of teaching which offers a corrupted and confused view of God's covenants and God's law. There's one way to see and enter God's kingdom, and it's through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit through the blood and life of Jesus Christ. We must make sure this morning spiritual reality, the inward reality, is true before we do anything external at the end of this service. If you'd bow with me. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word, which is always true, always faithful, always clear, um, despite how weak the vessel that carries it is. Lord, I thank you for um, the gift of your son, Lord, the the work of your Holy Spirit who makes true the word of God in us. Lord, I pray that we would not live as, as pagans do, that we would not live as actors do, pretending that things are true about us that are not true in Christ. May we live out what is true in Christ, that we have died with him. We have died to the world, died to our sin and our flesh. We have been raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.